Please turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4, beginning to read at verse 3. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Amen. Father God, we do come to you uh, this morning so thankful for the incredible salvation that you have wrought uh, in our uh, hearts by your Holy Spirit, applying the redemption of Christ. We're thankful for the incarnation and all that it means to to us and uh, that it unites us with you. And it is our desire as we study this glorious doctrine this morning that our hearts would be warmed, that we would be uh, uh, drawn into a uh, a deeper appreciation for all that uh, you have wrought for us. We pray for your blessing on this time as we continue to worship. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Focus on the family uh, shared a story about God's providence of both the painful and the ugly events in our lives, as well as of the very touching and beautiful. Now, we tend to think of providence as the touching and the beautiful things that happen uh, in our lives, and we completely miss the former. Now, this story took place on January 10, 1948. A Hungarian immigrant by the name of Marcel Sternberger used to take the train in from Woodside, New York, where uh, he would... Uh, catch a subway to his office downtown, but on a whim, he decided to do something he had never done before. He decided to visit his friend Victor or Laszlo Victor, who lived in Brooklyn, New York. So he got off at uh, Ozone Park, took the subway to Brooklyn, and he stayed at his friend's house until mid-afternoon. He then boarded the Manhattan-bound subway to his Fifth Avenue office, and I want to pick up the story as told by Marcel himself. He said, The car was crowded, and there seemed to be no chance of a seat. But just as I entered, a man sitting by the door suddenly jumped up to leave, and I slipped into the empty place. Now, I've been living in New York long enough not to start conversations with strangers, but being a photographer, I have the peculiar habit of analyzing people's faces, and I was struck by the features of the passenger on my left. He was probably in his late 30s, and when he glanced up, his eyes seemed to have a hurt expression in them. He was reading a Hungarian-language newspaper, and something prompted me to say in Hungarian, I hope you don't mind if I glance at your paper. The man seemed surprised to be addressed in his native language, but he answered politely, You may read it now. I'll have time later on. During the half-hour ride to town, we had quite a conversation. He said his name was Bella Poskin, a law student. When World War II started, he had been put into a German labor battalion and sent to the Ukraine. Later, he was captured by the Russians and put to work burying the German dead. After the war, he covered hundreds of miles on foot until he reached his home in Debrecen, a large city in eastern Hungary. I myself knew Debrecen quite well, and we talked about it for a while. Then he told me the rest of his story. 
When he went to the apartment, once occupied by his father, mother, brothers, and sisters, he found strangers living there. Then he went upstairs to the apartment that he and his wife once had. It was also occupied by strangers. None of them had ever heard of his family. As he was leaving, full of sadness, a boy ran after him, calling, Paskinbachi, Paskinbachi, that means Uncle Paskin. The child was the son of some old neighbors of his. He went to the boy's home and talked to his parents. Your whole family is dead, they told him. The Nazis took them and your wife to Auschwitz. With that news, Paskin gave up all hope of ever seeing his wife alive again. A few days later, too heartsick to remain any longer in Hungary, he set out again on foot, stealing across border after border until he reached Paris. He managed to immigrate to the United States in October 1947, just three months before I met him. All the time he had been talking, I kept thinking that somehow his story seemed familiar. A young woman who I had met recently at the home of friends had also been from the Brechen. She had been sent to Auschwitz. From there, she had been transferred to work in a German munitions factory. Her relatives had been killed. Later, she was liberated by the Americans and was brought here in the first boatload of displaced persons in 1946. Her story had moved me so much that I had written down her address and phone number, intending to invite her to meet my family and thus help relieve the terrible emptiness in her life. It seemed impossible that there could be any connection between these two people, but as I neared my station, I fumbled anxiously in my address book. I asked in what I hoped was a casual voice, <clears throat> was your wife's name Maria? He turned pale. Yes, he answered. How did you know? He looked as if he were about to faint. I said, let's get off the train. I took him by the arm at the next station and led him to a phone booth. He stood there like a man in a trance while I dialed her phone number. It seemed hours before Maria Paskin answered. Later I learned her room was alongside the uh, telephone, but she was in the habit of never answering it because she had so few friends and the calls were always for someone else. This time, however, there was no one else at home, and after letting it ring for a while, she responded. When I heard her voice at last, I told her who I was and asked her to describe her husband. She seemed surprised at the question, but gave me a description. Then I asked her <coughs> where she had lived in Debrechen, and she told me the address. Asking her to hold the line, I turned to Paskin and said, Do you, Did you and your wife live on such and such a street? Yes, Bella exclaimed. He was white as a sheet and trembling. Try to be calm, I urged him. Something miraculous is about to happen to you. Here, take this telephone and talk to your wife. He nodded his head in mute bewilderment, his eyes bright with tears. He took the receiver, listened for a moment to his wife's voice, <clears throat> then suddenly cried, This is Bella! This is Bella! And he began to mumble hysterically. Seeing that the poor fellow was so excited he couldn't talk coherently, I took the receiver from his shaking hands. Stay where you are, I told Maria, who also sounded hysterical. I am sending your husband to you. We will be there in a few minutes. Bella was crying like a baby and saying over and over again, it is my wife, I go to my wife. 
At first I thought I had better accompany Poskin lest the man should faint from excitement, but I decided this was a moment in which no strangers should intrude. Putting Poskin into a taxi cab, I directed the driver to take him to Maria's address, paid the fare, and said goodbye. Now, I'm not going to tell you the rest of the story, or the whole story, but I do want to talk about the providences involved. What led him to deviate from his schedule? Uh, what led him to visit his friend on a work day? What led him to slip into the seat beside Poskin? Or to talk to him when he never talked to strangers? And actually, if you read the whole story, there are all kinds of questions that could have been asked of both Bella and his wife Maria on what went on you know, during those intervening years. What led them? Uh, they didn't hear any voices. They didn't get any feeling of guidance or anything like that. It was simply God's providence, and yet God's providence led them powerfully. From hindsight, we can see God's providence all the way through the story, including uh, both how he and his wife had been spared death in Hungary and uh, had been taken to different work centers, uh, but the news being withheld from him, in fact, he was told the opposite, that they were all dead, and if that had not happened, he would probably have tried to be reunited with his wife, which would have probably guaranteed his own death. Um, the providences of meeting the young boy in Hungary and a hundred other providences that actually worked together for his good, but which seemed like anything but good at the time that he went through those uh, providences. And so the, the question is, why does God allow us to go through some of those things? Many of those providences seem like disappointment after disappointment, and yet each one of those providences was just as necessary as the painful providences that Joseph and Mary experienced in the Advent story. And perhaps you've never considered uh, the fact that they went through a lot of painful providences. We tend to look at Christmas story as being a very sweet thing, you know, and we read the sweet aspects of this. But I tell you, the Advent story was anything but sweet to those who were experiencing it. Uh, Joseph was falsely accused of premarital relations with Mary for his whole, whole life. If only God had sent his angel to tell him what was going on and what's going to happen a few months earlier, perhaps he could have avoided all of that pain in his life. But uh, God wanted everyone to know that this was not Joseph's child, okay? Uh, we know what led to hardship, and we know this from the fact that Jesus, on more than one occasion, is accused of being born out of wedlock in the Gospels. It was very common knowledge. In order for Joseph to be registered in Bethlehem, he had to quit his carpentry business, which meant that there would be no income for quite some time. And back then, carpentry didn't bring in a lot of money, so they were probably struggling financially. The timing of the census, which is really an irrational, weird, and tyrannical census, is a horrible thing, but the timing of that uh, just did not seem to be right with the pregnancy. I think you women can appreciate the discomfort experienced by a woman who's nine months pregnant and riding on a bumpy donkey for 72 miles from Nazareth down to, uh, to, to, to Bethlehem. That would not have felt like a sweet story 
not at all. Uh, may have seemed as if God's sense of timing was totally off. And then there was the inconvenience of going to every local hotel in Bethlehem only to find that they had been booked long before and all the homes were plumb full. He couldn't find anything where they could stay. That too seemed like God had made a mistake. Joseph probably wished he had reserved something a lot earlier. And my question to you is if you were Joseph, what would be your reaction? What would you be thinking about this time, about God's providences? And if you were Mary, what would you uh, be thinking when you're wandering around the town uh, about ready to deliver and thinking, we don't even have a place to stay? Those are the kinds of questions that I think measure our maturity in Christ a whole lot better than a long theological exam. Uh, it's how we respond to God's providences. Sometime after their stay in the stable, uh, there were apparently even more misplaced providences, and I put misplaced in quotes, okay? Uh, as the wise men from the east talked to the wrong guy, I mean totally the wrong guy, why on earth did they talk to Herod, who they discover later is about to kill or uh, wants to kill uh, Christ? They, they realize probably, wow, did they ever blow it on that one? Or did they blow it? Well, not if you understand that God prophesied that Herod would hear troubling news from the east and he would, in a rage, kill many children and he was an integral part of the prophecies of the Old Testament. This, in turn, results in the flight of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus into Egypt, which is a 110-mile trek one way. Okay, Those of you who have traveled with uh, new babies... No, it's not the funnest thing to be traveling a long time, and they didn't have the air conditioning and everything that we had, and yet this was a part of God's plan and purpose that would bring comfort to God's people and show the worldwide purposes of His kingdom. You can probably work through some of the other providences and the gospel narratives on your own and see that there would have been a lot of things that could easily have become frustrating for Joseph and for Mary. Uh, I'm sure they rejoiced at the perfect providence of God when these wise men show up and give them gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These were incredibly valuable gifts. They were probably struggling financially, and they're saying, thank you, Lord. This is perfect timing. This is going to take us through our sojourn in Egypt. And we tend to focus on providences like that, but God's hand was every bit as much at work in the painful providences that went on earlier. Sometimes it takes hindsight to have tears of joy rather than tears of anguish. And so this passage I've just read is one of many passages in Scripture that encourages us to look at life through the lens of Romans 8:28, and uh, look at life realizing that every single event in history is predestined by God. Ephesians 1 talks about it. The Proverbs talks about the, la the lot being cast. You know, those are dice. And, you know, at the gambling casinos over there, every single roll of that dice is not chance. It's God's providence that does that. There is not a molecule of dust you can breathe into your nose that God has not already planned out from before the foundation of the world. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at three simple points. That's why you don't have an outline. Just three points, no subpoints. Uh, point one is that God has a perfect timetable even if it sometimes does not look like it. 
perfect timetable. Now you can see that in the phrase that says, when the fullness of the time had come. That's in verse 4. There was a fullness of the time for his birth, fullness of time for his death. There was a, a fullness of time for everything that God does, including the sale of your home, including the fact that you can't find a job right now. Uh, including the breakdown of a car, and you can fill in the blanks of other frustrating things that have come into your life. I've got a quote that I want you to think about. Dr. Joel Hunter once said, The Bible clearly teaches that one moment not only follows another, but one moment builds on another toward a planned purpose or end. Let me repeat, uh, repeat that. He said that the Bible clearly teaches that one moment not only follows another, but one moment builds on another toward a planned purpose or end. There is nothing in history that does not contribute in some way to God's perfect plan for planet Earth. The joyful triumphs in your life and the discouraging disappointments in your life are all a part of God's plan for you individually. Uh, when I did my personal timeline, and I, I don't remember exactly if it was 1999, 2000, uh, somewhere around there, uh, I was absolutely blown away. Initially, I went into the exercise skeptical, thinking this is going to be a bunch of busy work, and it was a lot of work. But I was blown away by the end of it, realizing that things all through the years I had seen as meaningless events in my childhood and later years uh, were orchestrated by God to prepare me to be the kind of leader, the kind of person, uh, the kind of minister now uh, that I am. There was nothing wasted, and of course there is no such thing as a meaningless event in God's, in God's history. The sovereign foundations that you had absolutely no control over, like your genetics, what home you were born into, and even things like the mistakes that you made growing up, the, the, the bad decisions that you had, they all have a purpose. And when you go through the exercise, as I did, in developing your own personal timeline, it is fascinating to see how God builds in so many people's lives event upon event upon event, preparing you for the present, your future ministry, and the relationships that you have. It's just fascinating to see it. Um, the guy who trained me in this, he took over a thousand people through this at that time, whether 1999, 2000. He said, everybody, you see the same patterns in everybody's life. God truly is working in your life, a Romans 8:28 story. What is true of the individuals? True of our church. The triumphs of our church, the disappointments of our church over the past 15 and a half years have been perfectly crafted by God to prepare us for whatever it is He's preparing us for. We don't know the future, but they, in faith, uh, have been preparing us. We can know that. Now, this concept of a fullness of time for every event has been fascinating to me for a long, long time. Uh, those of you who have heard any of my Providential History Festival lectures uh, know that one of my most exciting adventures began when I started reading R.J. Rushdoony's World History Notes. Now recently I went back to scan through them and I thought, man, I've been advertising these notes forever as being the most amazing things ever. They're not actually that great <laughs> now that I look back on them, but they're great in one, one aspect. 
he was doing it providentially and for the first time in my life I saw how different events dovetailed and merged and had a purpose and how God uh, used them. For the first time I began to see how it was absolutely imperative that the barbarians overrun Rome at the precise time that they overran Rome and how the plow had to be invented at exactly the time that it was invented in order to help the gospel actually in Christ's kingdom to take off in northern Europe and there's so many little details like that that some other people have now done a lot better than him but he was a pathbreaker and uh, for me it was uh, it, it, it was a wonderful adventure that I began so from that point on, after reading those notes, I began asking historical events, why did that happen? What purpose did that serve in God's plans? Now, I'll have to admit, the vast majority of historical events, I still don't have a clue what God's purpose in those were. But as I've asked that question, I've begun to immediately recognize, just by asking that question, seeing God's hand in events that before just were facts out there that were uninterpreted. I didn't see the point of those facts. Uh, Steve Wilkins uses the same methodology in analyzing uh, history, and his history lectures, to me anyway, are just spellbinding. I don't necessarily agree with everything that he has to uh, say, but it's fascinating the way he weaves philosophy and practical ethics and religion and history together into a fascinating collage. And by the way, um, Dr. Robert Godfrey, a different theological persuasion, but he does the same thing at Westminster Seminary. He's one of my favorite uh, historians to, to listen to. And actually, I went to class with him. He was even more fascinating if you could get him off topic with a question. And then, in fact, people got used to doing that. He hardly got through most of his lectures. Ah, oh, he was just brilliant the way he could weave all of these things together and show how history had a purpose. It makes history absolutely come alive. The more you do providential history, the more you agree with Solomon that there is a time and a purpose for everything under heaven. Well, that is what Paul is saying in this passage. There was a building up moment upon moment of numerous historical events to prepare for the incarnation. Verse 4 again. But when the fullness of time had come. That word fullness is the Greek word pleroma. Okay? Uh, pleroma is just a simple word. It means to fill up. It's used of filling up a basket with bread, right? Filling up the law with love. It's used to fill up many different uh, types of things. And here it, he applies it to time. Time being filled up, just like a basket, okay? God created things to be filled, which means that God not only created the things, but He created the capacities for those things. Does that make sense? Uh, when uh, in, in Genesis chapter 1, He would create things and then He would command them to be filled. Well, they're not instantaneously filled with everything. Mankind is to fill the earth and, and to subdue it. So He created things, He then created capacities for those things that would over time be filled up. Well, think about time that way. Time is a created reality. It did not exist before, if there is such a thing as before in eternity. It did not exist before Genesis 1.1. He created time, but he created the capacity for time to be filled up as well. 
in various ways. When the fullness of time had come requires a patience as that time is being filled up. You can't just sit there drumming your fingers expecting the Lord to hurry up. You cannot speed up the Lord on His plans. You get in board with what He is doing in His plans. When we see a New Testament passage which says, and thus was fulfilled such and such a prophecy, it uses the word, same word, plerao or pleroma, because prophecy builds toward an event. Now when we say, okay, a prophecy was fulfilled, we think of one event right there. That's not a biblical way of thinking. In biblical theology, there's these thousands of events uh, that all had to happen in order for this prophesied event to be achieved. And that's why it uses this word, uh, play Roma. Uh, <clears throat> and what is true in history is also true about your life. It's true about our church. It's true about Christ's birth. Numerous moments have been building on top of each other, filling up God's timetable until the last predestined moment made it historically ready for Christ to come. In the book of Esther, I'm sure there were Jews out there who were wondering why God was being so slow in coming through on their behalf. But from hindsight, we see God had every moment of the book of Esther planned out perfectly. His timing was exactly right. Well, that's what verse 4 means. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under, a law, under the law. We have this tendency to think all of those preparatory moments uh, were kind of useless. We're so focused on the end result, we get discouraged over the intermediate events that are not quite so exciting. Now, two weeks ago, I talked about covenant succession and how it requires a seventh-generation perspective. A lot of Christians don't have the patience for that. Okay, But if God has given you a faith for covenant succession, and not everybody has that faith, but if God's given you a faith for covenant succession, God will use your efforts right now to be filling up the whole potential for covenant succession, or perhaps with some of you even dynasty uh, within uh, America. It keeps us from being discouraged when we're at the beginning stages of building a multi-generational heritage. What you're doing right now is critical to the future. And uh, Gary and I are going to be reminding you of that from time to time over the next year. We've been thinking and strategizing. How do we help our people to get more and more understanding what is involved? And it, initially, it's hard to, to grasp, you know, how in the world can we impact anything that's uh, two, three generations down the road? Well, hopefully over time, you're going to be seeing there's lots of ways without in any way violating the integrity of the nuclear family, things that you do that will impact them in the future. And sometimes there are things that are whims. You know, when we, when we um, uh, registered our children as dual citizens, automatically we made a decision that met none of our kids can be presidents of the United States of America. You know? <laughs> but... It also gave them some liberties for the future. It gave them the ability, if they got a business and they want to travel to a country, to use, depending on if uh, that country hates Canada or hates America, they can use that passport. So there's lots of things that we can do that can impact the future. And the more self-conscious we are 
of thinking about that without in any way impinging on the, the integrity of the nuclear family. We can benefit them, and it's up to them whether they take advantage of that or not. But the point is we cannot rush God. Now, you might be able to see that for the big issues, but what about the smaller details? Wasn't it a bit mistimed to have the census during the ninth month of pregnancy? Joseph and Mary may have been tempted to think so, and yet we find out it was absolutely necessary for this Nazarene to be born in Bethlehem. It was a part of the fullness of time. Wasn't it a bit uh, a tad off uh, to have the wise men from Babylon unwittingly going to the enemy, tipping off Herod? What a blunder. And I'm sure they were kicking themselves for having made that blunder and endangering Christ's life, but at least two prophecies would be unfulfilled apart from that blunder. And perhaps you've made a blunder even this past week, and you're kicking yourself, you're cringing, you're thinking, oh man, that's going to ruin things for the future. Now, let me tell you, God even uses the blunders that we make to fill up time in a Romans 8.28 way in your lives. Now, we do need to take responsibilities for our actions, but God can even bring good out of those things. This huge blunder was used of God to necessitate a short trip to Egypt and fulfill yet another prophecy that would encourage God's people. And the more you study the dozens and dozens of apparently misplaced events, the more you realize every single one of them was needed for God's purposes. Christ could not have come one bit earlier, one bit later. He came in the fullness of time. And there is a fullness of time for every event in history. I think of my grandpa Kaiser, who was uh, drafted into the German army. He was a part of the advance guard uh, unit uh, in World War I and uh, trained for fighting. And um, he got a dislocated uh, shoulder at one point uh, during the training and it kept coming out of joint and there wasn't anything that they could do about it so they shoved him into the kitchen he had to do KP duty and in the kitchen uh, even picking up a, a, a sack of flour would dislocate his shoulders so they kicked him out of the army well later on he discovered there was not a single person in his unit that survived he was the only one who survived so looking back, earlier he was frustrated. Why, Lord, uh, did you have me have my dislocated shoulder? But if it wasn't for that, uh, we would not be here. Um, and so God had a purpose for that. There were a lot of other frustrating things that happened in Germany without which he would never have emigrated to Canada. And uh, my parents have told me one frustrating thing after another in their lives that were absolutely essential for getting my mom and dad to go onto the mission field in Ethiopia. When we're tempted to get upset with a traffic jam, we need to be convinced, look, this traffic jam somehow is filling up God's good purposes for my life. Amen. God is working it together for my good. Uh, now, you've heard some of these things from a sermon that I gave in Ecclesiastes, and I'm going to have you turn with me, if you would, to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 1 uh, through 8. Now, earlier in the, in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon talks about how meaningless historical events can be when you're not walking right with God. In fact, he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Vanity can be emptiness, it can be purposelessness, 
But when you're not walking right with God, everything can be meaningless. But I want you to see the contrast here in uh, Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 8. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. Now, if God is working all things together for your good, this is the first thing I want you to be convinced of. It is impossible for God's timing to be off in your life. Impossible. Absolutely impossible. The things that you are viewing as frustrating right now may very well be a proverbial Greece or a proverbial Rome being used to prepare you. Trust His timing and learn to humble yourselves under the hand of God and say, Lord, I just trust that what you've brought into my life is going to work together for good. It is humiliating, it is difficult, but I humble myself under your hand. Now, it doesn't mean you should be passive. Never be passive, okay? But trust His timing as you do your best to move forward. Now, we're going to move a lot quicker through the, the remain, remainder of the, the sermon, but the next thing that we need to trust is God's sovereign initiative. God is not frantically trying to fix the goof-ups of His people. He's not frantically responding to our choices. God totally takes the initiative now, and he totally took the initiative back then. So Paul goes on to say, God sent forth his son. This is an act of God's will. It was a planned act all the way back from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, where he promised exactly what was going to happen here. In Daniel 9, he promised to the year exactly when Christ would be crucified. And there are a lot of other passages that talk about this. Now, for all of those prophecies to happen, it was also an act that required power. And we'll see that in the next phrase. But to have perfect timing, there has to be perfect control. God's sovereignty is demonstrated over and over again in the Advent story. If this is a universe of meaning, then it cannot be a universe of chance events. It's pure and simple. Those are the only two alternatives you have. Either God is sovereign and every event has meaning and purpose, or chance rules and no event can have historical meaning. Every meaningful event would have to be isolated from history if chance ruled. And I want you to listen to R.J. Rushdoony here. He says, because our age is so thoroughly humanistic, it is in rebellion against predestination which is simply the assertion of God's sovereignty, government, and control. Humanism insists that man must be in control, and socialism and communism, as well as scientific planning, psychological controls, and other attempts of man to control man and nature are simply assertions of predestination by man. You're always going to have somebody predestinating, right? Uh, 
Men think they can predestinate. They're fools if they think so, but that's what governments are always trying to do. But anyway, continuing to read, the only alternative to the doctrine of predestination is the assertion of the reign of total chance, of meaninglessness and brute factuality. The real issue is what kind of predestination we shall have. Predestination by God or predestination by man? Shall we accept God's eternal decree, His total planning, or will we submit to man's total planning, man's dream of playing God and planner over all of creation? So whether you're thinking of your plans for your own life individually, for your family, for our church, we've got to make sure that we are not planning in a way that's our attempt to predestinate the future, our attempt to control the future, uh, our, our attempt to invent the future. We can't. We cannot do that. All we can do is get on board with what God is doing and not be trying to determine the future ourselves. So biblical planning involves a sensitivity to what God is doing, getting on board with His sovereign initiative, and submitting when He changes our plans. Now we're going to get to the imperative of planning just in a moment but the point here is that God's initiative in other words his sovereignty must be acknowledged as a normal part of our life the moment we start rebelling against that like uh, Rodney was uh, illustrating from numbers the moment we start rebelling against it we're the only ones that are hurt God's not hurt at all we get frustrated we get bitter we get upset internally the only way we're going to have peace we're going to have uh, satisfaction, we're going to be even successful in our plans, is if we quit trying to invent, predestine, and control the future, and we get on board with what God is doing. Um, there is an imperative for planning, but uh, um, the Christmas story is a story of perfect timing, even though it didn't look like it. It's a story of perfect sovereign initiative, even though it didn't look like it. And then the last or the third factor is that all who wait for something must be confident that God has a perfect plan for the future. God's plan for your future is perfect even when it doesn't look like it. Now you might be tempted to say, and certainly Satan's going to tempt you to think, that God has ruined your life that it doesn't look perfect at all but it is it is an absolutely perfect plan it's not an issue of timing and power or just an issue of timing and power it's an issue of wisdom and goodness the plan for joseph mary and many generations after them is very succinctly stated in verses four through five let me read that but when the fullness of time had come god sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to and here's the purpose clause to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons and because you are sons God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts crying out Abba Father therefore you are no longer a slave but a son and if a son then an heir of God through Christ now that is an incredible plan he had to be man to represent us to God and so in some way he has to be related to the human race so the text says he was born of a woman but he had to be God to represent God to us and so it says he existed long before the incarnation he sent forth his son God the son the second person of the Trinity came down from heaven into the incarnation but how Jesus was born of the woman had landmines that had to be uh, avoided as well 
if he inherited a sin nature from Adam, he could not be our Savior. Our Savior has to be absolutely perfect. So how could he truly be a man without inheriting Adam's sin nature? All of the rest of us inherited Adam's sin nature. Well, you women, I think, will get a kick out of this. In God's patriarchal economy, the sin nature is passed down to all of us through the male, through the father, not through the mother. Okay, you can rub that into us uh, men at some point. It's passed on through the father, not through the mother. So no male father was involved in this incarnation. If you look in the margin, you'll see that the word for born is literally made. He was made of a woman. God took her egg, so he is very flesh, a very flesh of this woman. He, he took the egg, and God provided the missing genetic material by a creative act. But if Jesus is to represent us, he has to be born under the law, both under its requirements as well as under its curses, so that he could become the curse for us. God had to walk a very fine line in order to make Jesus our Savior. Where you would expect a, a father to be mentioned as begetting, none is mentioned. Instead, Paul says he was sent forth by God the Father. Jesus had to be the God-man, and his humanity had to be undefiled. And the more you meditate on the incredible nature of the incarnation, you realize this goes even beyond anything we could comprehend. It was a perfect, perfect plan. But the plan goes further. The one who, as to his deity, gave the law had to be subject to the law as to his humanity, born under the law. To redeem us, he had to pay the law's penalty, but to represent us, he had to perfectly keep the law. Our whole future is tied up with Jesus being the culmination of a perfect plan. It is through his sonship we can be adopted as sons, uh, and that by our union with him, we can receive the Holy Spirit. That's in verse 6. And that we can be made heir of all things. We couldn't inherit a single thing from God the Father apart from union with Christ, apart from the incarnation. And when you study all that's involved in the incarnation, and this is just a tiny, tiny snapshot of it. It's a wonderful one, but it's a tiny snapshot. When you understand all that's involved, you begin to realize God's plan is astounding, perfect, and beautiful. But... It sure didn't seem like it if you were in the shoes of Joseph and Mary. So God's timing was perfect, his sovereign initiative was perfect, and his plan was perfect. And that part of the story, too, should give us comfort and encouragement. R.J. Rushdoony says, Time and history, therefore, have meaning because they were created in terms of God's perfect and totally comprehensive plan. Every blade of grass, every sparrow's fall, the very hairs of our head, all are comprehended and governed by God's eternal decree and all have meaning in terms of it. The humanist faces a meaningless world in which he must strive to create and establish meaning. The Christian accepts a world which is totally meaningful and in which every event moves in terms of God's predestined purpose. And when man accepts God as his Lord and Christ as his Savior, every event works together for good to him because he is now in harmony with that meaning and destiny, Romans 8.28. That's from page 8 
of uh, Rush Dooney's uh, book, um, The Biblical Philosophy of History, which, by the way, is my second favorite of all Rush Dooney's books. I just love that book. But back to point three, do you view everything in your life as meaningful? That perspective can give, um, enable you to fulfill Paul's command to thank him for all things and to fulfill another command that he gives, to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Even the painful and sad events should be seen as part of God's good timing, his sovereign initiative, and his perfect plan for you. And as I look over the past 15 and a half years of this church's history, I can see how even the discouragements of investing enormous time and labor in people who later leave and they stab you in the back was for their good, it's for our good, it's for God's glory, and I can rejoice in that. I can be satisfied in that. I don't need to be frustrated. There's no need to be frustrated. But as we look to the future... And as we, from time to time, look at covenant succession, I want you to have confidence that God has a perfect plan for your covenant succession, or at least your involvement in other people's covenant succession. Both of those are glorious, okay? Your own covenant succession or other people's. The three points of this sermon are a foundation on which you can start planning and preparing for the future. So be encouraged with God's perfect timing, His perfect sovereign initiative, and His perfect plan for you and if those three ways if in those three ways God is for you who can be against you amen Amen. let's pray father we thank you so much for your uh, glorious timing your glorious initiative and your glorious plan for our lives as we consider the advent and all that it meant Uh, may we apply this on a day-by-day basis. May we never give up hope. May we never lose faith. Uh, May we never uh, stop planning for the future and preparing for the future in ways that are seeking to understand what your purposes in our lives are and getting on board with those purposes. May we not try to invent the future, control the future, or even try to control the present. We know that we cannot. But may we uh, completely submit to you, follow you, and fight for you with all of our might, knowing that if you are for us, who can be against us? Bless this, your people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.